Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Paul Listnick Behind the Curtain, the opportunity for me to leave the TV side of life where we cover politics and law. And uh, actually, today's interview, I guess, involves a little politics of a different sort. It involves the politics of the Oscars. And uh, so we're going to talk to the author of a new book, which is, if you're a movie fan like I am, this is like an encyclopedia, only better written than an encyclopedia, uh, of Oscar history going right back to the beginning. It is Oscar Wars, A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat, and Tears. And joining me is the author, Michael Shulman. Michael, congratulations on this like 500-page tome on the history of the Oscars. You are a walking encyclopedia. Thank you. I do hope that it's more fun to read than a, a, an encyclopedia and... uh you know, I tried my best to, to to entertain the people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's full of stories and whatever. And again, for fans like me, it was just it's so great to read all of these things. First of all, you know, some of the things you say very early on in the book that the Academy Awards generally get it wrong. Um, and I think a lot of people would actually say that because we everybody has their favorite. You know, in the world of the Emmys, one of my producers once said to me, this is a popularity contest, Paul, win or lose. It is no more than that. Do you think that's true about the Oscars? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into why people win or don't win Oscars. And the quality of the movie is one among many. You know, there's the uh, the campaign machine, which goes year round, more or less. Um, There's personal popularity. There's the idea that someone, you know, had a long career and deserves it. Um, there's the sort of underlying politics of Hollywood. You know, we've seen year after year where Netflix has tried to clinch Best Picture and hasn't been able to because there's a kind of resistance to Netflix and resentment. So, yeah. And then there's just sort of sheer dumb whatever, you know, little scandals that pop up or, you know, just shifts in groupthink, um, you know, the, on the face. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny that you that you mentioned like people who ultimately deserve it because you're right. There's the history of Oscars is filled with people who got an award for a movie they probably didn't deserve it for, but it was really for something else that they didn't get it for. But I've always looked at lifetime achievement awards as sort of the way of saying, "Hey, we've screwed you your whole career, so we're going to give you one now." Maybe, but I mean, look at this year. Uh does anyone think that Jamie Lee Curtis's best performance is the one in Everything Everywhere All at Once? She was good in it, but, you know, that award was for her career. Right. I think she knew that, too, based on her acceptance speech. I think she got the sense of that. One of the also, again, when I say you take us back to the beginning, you truly do. Here's something I didn't know so much that was in your book, but even though I'm a fan of the Oscars. But um, is it fair to say that if Louis B. Mayer didn't play solitaire, we might not have the Oscars? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Louis V. Mayer was the, it was his brainchild, the Academy. And, um, the Academy didn't have the creation of the Academy in the twenties is really interesting because awards were an afterthought. You know, there were awards were on a long list of things that the Academy thought it might get around to doing. But the reason that the Academy existed wasn't to give awards. It was for a number of reasons, one of which was to forestall unionization in Hollywood, because people like Louis B. Mayer wanted their labor force to do whatever they wanted on his time. Um, 
and the academy kind of played the role of arbiter and negotiator of contracts and stuff and was hated for it and then also early hollywood was besieged by all these salacious scandals like you know the murder trial of fatty arbuckle and stuff like that and so hollywood had a terrible pr problem in the 20s and it it what the academy did was help it rebrand you know everyone out in the in the country thought hollywood was the cesspool of sin but if you could bill yourself more as an academy of a lofty art form motion pictures arts and sciences it um it, it kind of put this more respectable face on the industry just when it needed it yeah, and and of course, and I, I guess I hadn't thought about it in terms of. I mean, I'm a member of SAG, so you know, it's a matter of you know these other unions were around and all of that. It made perfect sense. Um, and the way it's shaped over the years has been stunning. I, I have to sort of step off book for a moment because one of the things that struck me as as an author myself was this is so well researched, and I this had to have taken you several years to write. You didn't write this in the 2023, which means you wrote it during <laughs> COVID. And if that's the case, how the heck did you do that? You couldn't get into the libraries. You couldn't get access to things. So you, well, so it it started in, I started it in 2018. So it took four years. So the first half I did before COVID. And fortunately, I got in a lot of time at the Academy Library in Beverly Hills and at the Performing Arts Library at Lincoln Center here in New York, where I live. Um, and as soon as COVID started, I was like, oh man, I still needed stuff in the library. You actually had to ask the librarians to look things up for you and scan them, which was, you know, it was like twice, it was like a Rube Goldberg machine of someone, you know, can you, I was like, can you find me something in variety about Citizen Kane from 1941? Well, that's not very specific, but I would have, you know, if I had been able to go in and search through varieties, I would have been, you know, just, I, you, you, sometimes as a researcher, you don't know what you're looking for and you come across things. And that became much harder. But on the flip side, um, the first part of COVID was when I was researching the chapter on 1969. And one of the main characters in it is uh, Candace Bergen. And so I used that time when we were all uh, benched, essentially, to reach some people who I thought might otherwise be busy. And so I got her on the phone because she sort of, you know, like all of us, she was sitting at home trying to fill up her time. And I got a bunch of good interviews that way. I'm so glad you mentioned Candace Bergen. That was actually my next question of the sort of Candace Bergen, Gregory Peck connection. Mm. By the way, do you happen to know Gregory Peck's son, Stephen, who actually is a filmmaker now and all that? Are you familiar with him? I interviewed him for the book. So there you go. I mean, so he's, you know, he's, he's phenomenal. Just even I interviewed him once and meeting him, it was stunning to be able to actually like, gee, your dad was Gregory Peck. But anyway, yeah. you write so much in the book about sort of the old versus new Hollywood. And for me, the Gregory Peck, Candace Bergen, whose father was Edgar Bergen, you know, stories. What a perfect way to display the old meets new. To talk, right. Talk about that story a bit. Yeah, that was a that was a chapter I had in mind from the beginning because um, I had heard through the grapevine that the Academy Peck folders, the, the Gregory Peck has his, his papers from his time as Academy president in the, uh, in their library. And I heard that there was this correspondence between him and the young Candace Bergen, who at that time in 1969 was like a 20 something starlet and it girl. And um, so I found this wonderful exchange that they had where basically uh, Bergen was telling him, you know, the Academy is full of these, washed up old antiquities who are ruining the art of motion picture and you need you need some new blood and why don't i go off and recruit some of my hip young friends like dennis hopper and you know peter fonda you know who were who had just made easy rider and bring them into the academy 
And Peck said, yeah, sure, go ahead. And so she was the perfect person to kind of bridge the old Hollywood and the new because she had come from an old Hollywood family. Her father was the ventriloquist Edgar Bergen, but she was sort of part of this hippie set. And so she rounded up all these kind of up and coming people like Dennis, you know, Dennis Hopper, Dustin Hoffman, you know, and, and brought them into the academy. And Peck, meanwhile, was a real visionary because he was not exactly a flower child. Like he was old fashioned. He was Atticus Finch. Right. Um, you know, he's a square. And yet he saw that the academy had to evolve and catch up with the 60s. You know, like right as the 60s were ending, he thought, okay, we need to really move forward and actually instituted a rule where anyone who had not worked in the academy anyone in the academy who hadn't worked on a movie in seven years would be uh demoted to non-voting status for the oscars which got a ton of pushback all of the hate mail he got from oldsters is are, are that's also in his folders and i loved reading all the all the letter all the complaining letters he got which he kept <laughs> How do you think that the folks, not even Gregory Peck, go back further, go to the United Artists folks, the Mary Pickfords and the Dennis Fairbanks. If they were looking at life today with regard to the Academy Awards, would do you think they would look and go, yeah, this is where I thought, even Louis B. Mayer, yeah, that's where I thought this would ultimately go? I don't, I don't know. I don't think so because the first decade of the Academy had, it really wasn't built around awards. You know, again, it was like this, it was this mechanism to sort of, resolve disputes and kind of oversee the very contentious labor issues. And I think they would have been really surprised to see that all people know about the Academy now is the Oscars and the Oscars are so incredibly uh, known throughout the world. As we go through the history of it, you have it's about a dozen chapters or so. It's like you picked your favorite years, your favorite mm-hmm. uh, Oscar moments through the years. I don't even know. How do you even do that when, you know, because of course you do it. I'm sure that other things occurred to you that like you didn't get to really have a chapter about you probably wanted to. Well, yeah, that was the whole concept behind the book from the beginning, which is that, you know, there are plenty of books that exist that go through every single year of the Oscars. And most of them predate, you know, Wikipedia. This is how you found out who won, you know, if you were growing up in like the 70s or 80s and wanted to learn about who would won every year and which records were set and what jokes were told by the host. But for me, the the whole idea of Oscar Wars, the whole premise was to not cover every single year, but just take about 12 years or even a single category from throughout the 90 some odd years of Oscar history and have a chapter for each one and go really deep and immersive and make you really care about the people involved, the characters, understand the sort of underlying politics uh, and what was going on. Each And each one would be would represent a kind of turning point for Hollywood history and would give you the immersive feeling of like every year now we go through this you know, endless Oscar season with all these twists and turns and surprises. And I wanted, you know, the Oscars of 1942 to feel just as unpredictable and wild and spontaneous. And, um, and and so that was the idea behind it. But yeah, I did have to, I did have to be very selective in what I chose. And that was the fun part. I had the sense that you, of course, write for the New Yorker as well. And so many great articles in the New Yorker, you wrote one, a while back ago that had to do with, of course, the infamous streaker, uh, who, you know, which could have been a chapter in itself. And it was a fairly lengthy article. And I'm sort of curious, was that something that you thought about would be a chapter that, that, yes, yes. Moment? So, uh, 
one of the chapters I wrote and then cut from the book was about the streaker from 1974. And, you know, I wrote it and then my editor and I looked at the whole book when it was finally done. And uh, she very wisely said to me, you know, this is really fascinating, but it's not in a way it's not about the history of Hollywood. It doesn't, it's not telling the story that the rest of the book is telling. And so maybe you can do something else with it. And so I turned it into a New Yorker magazine piece because it's about this crazy guy, Robert Opal, who was like a wild child. Um, and, you know, the streak was, you know, got him his 15 minutes of fame in 1974. But then he went on to open a gay erotic art gallery in San Francisco and had this incredible, like, mysterious um, death, you know, five years after the streak in 1979. Was he, something? he was murdered in the gallery. So and I had gone to San Francisco and looked through all these court papers. So it was kind of, it was a lot of interesting story that was about this fascinating guy, but it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with anything else in the book. So I, 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 I took it out and, and turned it into its own thing. And, and it was, and it's a great article. So maybe that was a good place for it. Uh, so we don't lose the story. Don't lose the research. Um, the other thing that you, you know, it's so hard to, when I kind of plan for this interview, I'm like, I don't want to walk through this chapter by chapter and whatever. And you've probably done those kinds of interviews and stuff. I just want to, just want to chat, um, with two people, one who read the book and one who wrote the book. But (laughs) one of the fascinating parts for me, because I'm a student of history, um, is the notion of the blacklist. And mm. and learning bits like, for example, one of my favorite writers, though I didn't know it uh, at the time, was uh, Robert Rich, who knew he was my favorite writer. <laughs> well, yeah. So I wanted to reckon with the the blacklist. Of course, it was a major, very dark era in Hollywood history. Um, but I wanted to do it my own way. And uh, basically, the chapter tells the story of these three screenwriters who. Um, were blacklisted and won Oscars under, you know, fake names or didn't get, didn't get the credit at the time that they made the movies. And so the way I stumbled into this way of telling the story is through this very weird Oscar scandal from 19, 1957, which is, has been mostly forgotten. But that year, Deborah Carr came out to present the award for best motion picture story, uh, which is a category that didn't exist after that year. Anyway, the winner was Robert Rich for a movie called The Brave One, which is about a little Mexican boy and his pet bull. And uh, Robert Rich was not there. Someone else took the award on his, uh, accepted on his behalf, but then no one emerged to claim it. And Robert Rich was this mystery man, like this phantom winner. And all of Hollywood was suddenly buzzing about this non-existent Oscar winner, Robert Rich, who could it be? And of course, it turned out to be a front, a, a pseudonym for a blacklisted screenwriter, namely Dalton Trumbo, who was probably the most famous of the blacklisted writers. And um, he, what he, what I love about this story is that even though the, the blacklist era is so dark and tragic, he, Dalton Trumbo, was this wit and this incredibly clever guy who sat behind his typewriter and schemed you know he would typewrite he would write on his typewriter in the bathtub so just picture this man in a bathtub with a typewriter scheming how to turn the tables using this pr you know scandal for the academy to undermine the and try to destroy the blacklist and it's just it's like a caper so i loved telling that story and unearthing this this thread of history that it, it's like the comedy 
beneath the tragedy of the blacklist. And my memory was the movie Trumbo of a few years back had him in there. I think we got those typing in the bathtub scenes, as I remember. I'm right? sure we did. Yeah, yeah. Was, that was that was his claim to fame. And in <laughs> besides writing, being blacklisted, right, right. And in the writing world, there's there always not a blacklist connection, but there's always been the question that those who study film, and especially those who study film, the magical question of who wrote Citizen Kane. Right now, I've seen the movie mm. Mank or Mank and and there's Orson Welles. But talk about that battle between them. Do we know today who actually wrote Citizen Kane? I mean, they both wrote it. They wrote it together. But you know. The I like the question is still who to really credit for being the genius mind behind Citizen Kane, and I, I don't think you can extract the incredible writing and directing and acting of Orson Welles from the kind of uh, drunk, clever genius of Herman Mankiewicz. What interested me in terms of the book is that um, I knew I wanted to do a chapter on 1942 because that was the year, among other reasons, but that was the year that Citizen Kane famously lost Best Picture and, in fact, lost everything right. it was nominated for except for the Screenplay Award, which was shared between Orson Welles and Herman Mankiewicz. So the question of who deserves credit is tied up in you know, the one Oscar that it won. And then meanwhile... The other mystery is, how did the Academy get this so wrong? Speaking of th- getting things wrong, I mean, this was like the most famous mistake probably the Academy ever made is not giving um, almost anything to Citizen Kane. There's also, you know, you you just called my attention to things. Again, I've been watching the Oscars since I'm a little kid, but the year that one of the, in my view, one of the greatest movies of all time, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, mm. was up against... Jaws <laughs> uh, and some other incredible. I think that was eighty nine. If, if am I right about that? Oh, this is seventy six, and this was an okay. incredible year. I mean, that lineup of, for Best Picture. I mean, I, I instantly knew this would be a whole chapter because just here's the five: One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Jaws, uh, Barry Lyndon, this Kubrick movie, um, Dog Day Afternoon, and Robert Altman's Nashville. I mean, every single one is a stone cold classic, um, and what I thought was so interesting about that year is that one flew over the cuckoo's nest famously won all the top awards. Uh, it won everything. It was, it's one of three movies that have won the big five. The other two are, it happened one night in the thirties and the science of the lambs in the nineties. So it was a, it was a total victory for citizen for um, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, but jaws was kind of the next represented the next wave of where Hollywood was going and so, you know, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, like those other movies, was this anti-authoritarian kind of new Hollywood tourist masterpiece. But Jaws was kind of the beginning of the end of all those other movies because it showed Hollywood, you know, how to make big money again. And it created the, the idea of this big summer blockbuster. And so just in telling the stories of those five movies, you tell the story of how Hollywood shifted and started to move from the 70s into the 80s. And Jaws gives us this little whatever happened to him guy named Steven (laughs) Steven Spielberg. Yeah, (laughs) you address Spielberg a lot in this book. I mean, that's part of what I get. When you kind of go through the book, you realize there are people who just through the decades, whatever. Maybe it's this notion of popularity versus other issues, but I mean, they ought to rename these wards the Spielbergs because of everything he's contributed. However, he you know has had terrible Oscar luck. You know, exactly. People have talked about the Spielberg curse because. You know, that year, 76, he was the only 
director of a Best Picture nominee who didn't get nominated for Best Director. And there's an incredible documentary um, that was made that year where you see him sitting in his office, like watching TV, waiting for to hear his name. And when he doesn't, he kind of self, he kind of implodes on camera. Um, and it took him a really long time to win an Oscar. He didn't win a, a an Oscar until 94 for Schindler's List. And then very famously lost uh best he won again for best directing for saving private ryan but but it lost uh best picture to shakespeare love and so i have a whole and that's like an epic that's war. An amazing that's that's an amazing, quite yeah. a battle and i have a whole long chapter on that because I, I, again one i always knew i would have in the book because it was this historic you know ugly fight to the death between miramax and dreamworks well and, and i did want to ask you about that because it's harvey weinstein we're talking about you know at this mm-hmm. point and um, and was that when the the sort of the Oscar Wars to choose your title the Oscar Wars truly comes alive in that moment because I guess people like Weinstein believe no I can win an award by having a phone campaign and then more recently this last year you saw apparently at least accusations of a phone campaign that may have put one actress ahead of others in terms of nominations. Well, Weinstein did make award campaigning much more aggressive and ruthless and eventually what happened is that everyone else in hollywood realized they had to copy his playbook in order to keep up with him and that's how you got the ecosystem we have now this very bloated expensive campaign ecosystem for the oscars that lasts basically all year round but i hope that people who read the book realize that that was far from the first oscar war and as as ugly as it was you know if you go back to you know the SAG versus the Academy in the thirties or, you know, the war between citizen Kane and William Randolph Hearst, that there has always been this sort of power struggle behind the Oscars. And there have always been these kind of factions and politics and uh, people clawing and scratching. And that's, that's kind of, that's kind of what I wanted to write about. And it's one of the reasons I think I love the book so much, because when you read about the early years, look, depending on the age of the reader, there's a lot of names you're not going to know, uh, maybe from from the early days of Hollywood and such. And yet, in many ways, the battles were the same. Oh, they've modernized and they, there's new techniques and we have technology now and other kinds of things. But but it's exactly your point. The battles have gone on all through the decades uh, because people want that award behind them. Uh, one person who significantly is funny, this is the name you mentioned, and I, I'm just guessing a lot of people don't connect to this name, but I do, and it's Alan Carr. And I mm-hmm. wrote the mind when I said 89 for Cuckoo's Nest, I was looking at the wrong thing. 89, I think, is what I had in mind uh, for the Rob Lowe year um, mm-hmm. and, and the Alan Carr thing. Alan Carr used to be on like the Mike Douglas show. He, this guy was everywhere in his lavish gowns. I found him fascinating. Right. So, um, for my so Alan Carr, for people who don't know him at all, he was um, the producer of Grease and s- some other movies, uh, which are less well known, like Can't Stop the Music, which is the movie about the rise of the village people. Right. Um, and he was a kind of over the top, flamboyant figure, uh, a gay man who had a stunning array of designer caftans and threw these bacchanals at his house uh, in the Hollywood Hills and. Um, he dreamt his whole life of producing the Oscars and finally got the chance in 1989. And he kept saying he was going to make them bigger and better and glitzier and all this. And um, when they finally 
happened. They were a a train wreck. Um, this was famously <laughs> the year that opened with an 11 minute opening number uh, with Rob Lowe singing Proud Mary with a woman dressed as Snow White. And it was it's so still in my head. I can loaded. See it. And yeah, it was so over the top. It was so insane and nonsensical. And it basically ruined Alan Carr's life. You know, like he was he was ostracized from Hollywood after that. And so I realized I wanted to do a long chapter on this because it's so funny and yet it's so tragic. You know, it's the story of basically an Icarus who flies too close to the sun and falls into the sea. And um, every detail about this guy and this particular ceremony is so ridiculous and over the top. And yet I think there's something really um, sad about it because he, you know, he sort of, he was his own worst enemy and he destroyed himself and, all he really wanted to do was be the king of Hollywood and, you know, put on this insanely glitzy ceremony. And for a period of time, he certainly put the light, he had the spotlight on him. He certainly made enough appearances. What I didn't know was that he actually gave us a couple of things. I want you to say them, not me, but a couple of things that remain with the Academy Awards today. And it's it's a great trivia question one day when somebody asked me to say mm. Alan Carr gets credit for that. Yes. So as much as the Academy tried to immediately erase him from history and existence uh he left behind a few important legacies one of them was that he um he got this idea from i I think the set designer but he decided to change and the winner is to and the oscar goes to yeah because he thought that would be kind of subliminal branding you keep saying the oscars the oscar the oscar and it would also be less harsh like winners versus losers um he was also really uh one of the first people to play up the fashion and the arrivals um you know there had always been like a red carpet and people came but if you watch the old ceremonies they they show about five minutes of people coming in and alan carr um really made it much much more into a whole production and of course throughout the 90s it became bigger and bigger you had joan rivers doing her show for e um, and now it's the red carpet it's basically as long and big and attention getting as the show itself yeah i, I was going to say that i say now that when I, you go to the the grid the programming grid to record things when because I, I like to skip commercials so you know i go and I go my god the the red carpet stuff is five times longer than the academy awards themselves exactly it's, it's, so we need to give alan carr his due yeah that well that's that's what i'm saying i agree with you um I want to also take you to 1969. It was another amazing year that, and I just remember it so well, but, but because aside from remembering the movie Oliver, one of the things I learned from the book, I had never thought about it before, but it's in that period of time, the Oscars go from, I guess I'll, my words, but the family fair of the world of Oscar into the very gritty X-rated movie. What a mad, what an incredible shift. I know. Um, so 1969, the winner was Oliver, which yeah. was, the first and only best picture winner to be rated G. I mean, the whole rating system was new. So nothing before that was really rated anything. But anyway, Oliver is the only best picture winner to be rated G. One year later, the winner was Midnight Cowboy, the only and first best picture winner to be rated X. So you went one year from G to X. So I asked myself, what happened in that year? What was the Academy going through? And um, of course, it was a, a... era of incredible cultural change as everyone knows but that was also the same year as this correspondence between gregory peck 
and Candace Bergen and the Academy desperately trying to keep up with the times and uh, and the change in, in movie taste and the, the youth quake of, you know, the baby boomers who suddenly wanted to see, you know, Easy Rider in 2001 A Space Odyssey and didn't care about, you know, Atticus Finch and Oliver and all that. So, you know, the, the that chapter, which is called X, is really just about capturing that the, the sort of chaos of that shift, that very sudden shift. Another sort of magical fascination I took from the book when you look at I'll just use the word diversity to talk about this grand category. You know, the people who were the first, the Hattie McDaniels or the Sidney Poitiers or, or uh, you know. Halle Berry, first, yeah. Yeah, Halle Berry, thank you uh, for, you know, kind of what happened to her. But but that's the point, right? They're, they get this recognition. So talk about that a little bit. But I, if I can, extend it into the discussion now that movies that these days would have been, or in the past, would have been best foreign film. Hey, today you get the Oscar for best picture sometimes. Right. Those things are connected. So basically, I wanted to braid the stories of these three Black Oscar pioneers, essentially, Hattie McDaniel, Sidney Poitier, and Halle Berry, who were all the first Black actors to win in their category, but decades apart. You know, we're talking about 1940, 1964, and 2002. So for each one of them, when they won, it was this historic moment where the Academy could really celebrate how uh, enlightened and progressive it was and open-minded and tolerant and all those words. Um, and yet for the winner, for the person who won, it was a kind of isolating experience. And all three of them had kind of difficult patches in their careers right after that, because they were, you know, they were the, 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 the one and only, and they had to represent everyone and sort of pleased no one um, for various reasons, you know, times changed on them and they were suddenly kind of stuck. You know, Hattie McDaniel played the mammy in Gone with the Wind. and Which now even, comes with a disclaimer, by the way. Right. I mean, even as she was playing the role, um, the NAACP was complaining about these mammy stereotypes and other stereotypes that Black actors were forced into in that era. Um, Sidney Poitier, you know, sort of, became this marquee star in the 60s for playing these sort of upstanding, you know, uh, clean cut guys like, you know, and um, guess who's coming to dinner and stuff yeah. like that. And then he was, you know, he came under criticism as well. And suddenly it, we entered the, you know, the the black exploitation era and he just fell out of style. Anyway, um, the point is that that sort of sets you up for the Oscars so white uh change that came in 2016 and 2017 when um, the Academy realized that it really had to do something more structural so that it wasn't so homogenous and so white. And and the the membership of the, of the Academy was really predominantly older white men. And so they uh, went out of their way to put, you know, start this initiative to bring in a lot more people and a lot more people who were uh, women, young people, people of color, and international members. So the Academy is now much more international than it was 10 years ago, say. And so I think you start to see that reflected in wins like Parasite, or in the fact that this past year, movies like um, All Quiet on the Western Front, uh, which is a German language movie, it wasn't just nominated for Best foreign language film it was nominated for something like nine academy awards um and, and so i think it's a great thing that the academy as a voting body is not 
so constricted by, you know, Hollywood as a geographical place anymore. It really, the members are all over the world and they don't have the kind of xenophobia um, mindset that the, the Academy had for many decades. The book is so well structured and I've got a green screen. Oh, oh I could show it as long as I put it in front of my, in front of my shirt. Uh, see if I do that, we lose the book. Uh, but anyway, uh, Oscar Wars, it's so well written, so well structured, interestingly structured. I apologize because I wanted to jump around to different things because I have pages and pages of questions <laughs> and notes and I, and I knew I had limited time and I'm like, what am I going to do? So I decided I would jump around and you let me and I thank you for letting me do that. No, I like that. I like the book is like a big, a big buffet. You can just take little pieces from this and that era and, you know, Absolutely. stuff yourself and gorge yourself with it. <laughs> and I just, I would every night, I would just take it to bed with me and, and just, and read chapters and, you know, and just, I mean, this is anybody, I don't know anybody who doesn't love movies. So it, this, it's a must read truly for everybody. Obviously you can get the book at Amazon going to, I actually saw it in a local bookstore here in Chicago called Unabridged Books. Um, it, it, it's just fantastic. I think what you've done is amazing. As I, I said, you you have an encyclopedia of knowledge. It's just amazing. I can't wait to see what you do next. Can you tell us what's up next? Well, I'm basically focusing on my day job, which is as a staff writer at the New Yorker. So you can gotcha. find me there. Well, I'll wait for the next one. Michael Schulman, the book is a history of Hollywood and gold, sweat and tears, Oscar Wars. Don't miss it. It's fantastic. You're amazing. Thank you for the time. During Oscar time, there was no way to get you for an interview, but you see, this is a topic that you can talk about at any time. And well, that's what I want to do. Thank you so much. My yes, pleasure. Great. Thank you, sir. Talk to you soon. So long. Bye-bye. Well, if you want to know more about what we've talked about here, follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Paul Lisnick. That's P-A-U-L-L-I-S-N-E-K. And I'd love to hear your comments or topic suggestions for future podcasts. You can also go to my website, paullisnick.tv. And hey, don't forget to hit subscribe on WGN Plus and iTunes and tune in each week to hear more Insider Scoop coming to you from behind the curtain.